All right, let me tell you a story. I remember when I was a brand new baby Christian. I walked into my local library just high on the Lord. I started browsing in the Christianity section and I picked up a book. But when I started reading the back, it said that Jesus was just a copy of an earlier pagan religion. This book went on to say that Christianity was just hatched up and constructed by borrowing from several other movements. As a brand new Christian, I was rocked. I began to doubt all the life-changing experiences I had just had in the last few months. Had I really come into contact with God? Was Jesus only made up? Could it be true that Jesus was just made up? In the following days and weeks, I took to some research with the aid of some of my friends who had been Christians for longer. Friends I had rejected in the past because they had tried to proselytize me. I learned a few pieces of information that I've hung on to. The first thing I learned was of the unmatched reliability of the New Testament. I learned that in over 27,000 early copies of the New Testament, there is less than 1% variance in the text. And the variance doesn't even affect any of the teachings. I also learned of the spurious nature of this book which had shaken me. It could not boast of the reliability of its sources, and in some cases, there were no source documents. This event ended up strengthening my faith, as I learned that what we believe in is actually based on evidence and facts. It is not a blind faith, but a reasonable faith. You're listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. Storytelling that aims to place the focus squarely on the real Jesus of Nazareth. This episode is aptly titled, Let Us Reason Together. Why this title? You're about to find out. I have often been asked the question, why do you believe in Jesus? There was a time when I would talk of the amazing turn of events and experiences that pulled me closer to God. But after some years, I came to realize a few things. People from all walks of life and belief systems have inspiring stories and experiences. My stories and experiences are certainly valid, but only if this Jesus is real. So, why do I believe in Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible? In one word, truth. I believe it because it's true. When I studied comparative religion in college, I eliminated many of the claims of various religions because they simply did not line up with reality. I was not a Christian at the time, but I could easily determine that the earth did not sit on an infinite foundation of elephants and turtles. I also knew that humans were not basically good. 
We lock our doors, hold on tightly to wallets, and teach children not to take candy from strangers. The simple message is that humans cannot be trusted. Of all the religions I studied, I only found two systems that did not espouse this doctrine that taught the goodness of man, Judaism and Christianity. I couldn't wrap my head around the sacrifices of Judaism at first, and when I learned of their meaning, it seemed a barbaric practice. But what disturbed me the most was the fact that, as far as I knew, these sacrifices were no longer going on. How were all these Jewish people finding atonement? This left Christianity, with at least on the surface, no major problems. After my studies, I left it at that, not wanting to investigate it further. I had no reason to want God. I was building my own reality. But when you become a three-time college dropout, your brother is imprisoned, and a schoolmate dies young and unexpectedly, you begin to find moments to examine what life is really about. And despite being a college dropout, I had a good job and I was an up-and-comer in the industry I loved, radio. I was in the best physical shape of my life. I was living how many young men wanted to live, carefree. Each day, I had no care in the world. I essentially had no worries. I was seeking self-actualization, but I myself was sought by Christ. And he found me, and he showed me the truth. I can no longer deny his claims, and if what he says is true, and it is, my entire existence would have to change. And it did, thanks to him. You're listening to Tales of the Revolution, the episode entitled, Let Us Reason Together. I had an opportunity to get on the phone with someone, and he had never had any miraculous healing. He did not respond to an emotional altar call. Don't get me wrong, these things can be valid. But I'm talking about my guest storyteller, Jay Warner Wallace. Noted broadcast journalist and correspondent of Dateline NBC, Keith Morrison, says he's known as the evidence whisperer. That's because for decades, Jay Warner Wallace has worked in law enforcement, and much of that time, he spent as a cold case homicide detective. In fact, he's made more appearances on Dateline NBC than any other cold case homicide detective, period. But he also found a time in his life when he took the skills he had learned in his profession to examine the claims of the New Testament. Well, let's let him tell the story. Here's cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. Like most people who work at the municipal level, we come into law enforcement and end up spending uh, time working in patrol because that's how you start at any point. You work patrol. And I did that too. And then I was assigned to gangs for a couple of years. And then I worked undercover for four years. And then I uh, was assigned to robbery homicide and eventually ended up working cold case homicides. And uh, we had some success with that. And so I worked a bunch of them. And uh, most of those ended up on Dateline. 
and that's probably what people know me the most because I've been on Dateline more than any other homicide investigator. And just because we're working these, our agency is not as large as other agencies in Los Angeles County, but we happened to get serious about cold cases and we had like 30 we needed to work through. Dateline started taking notice and that's how we ended up doing all these Dateline episodes. But for the most part, that's really where my expertise has been. And, and if you think about cold cases, the nature of the cold cases, you have an event from say 30 years ago and you have reports that were written by officers. The officers are now dead sometimes and the witnesses are now dead so you have these reports where you're not you, you got to figure out what happened but you don't always have access to the original eyewitnesses and you don't always have access to the original report writers who talked to the eyewitnesses and that is very much if you think about it like what we're doing with the gospels we, we have these accounts and we're not quite sure if they're true and we have no access anymore to the eyewitnesses and no access to the gospel authors who wrote the eyewitness accounts so so now we're stuck how do we assess those well a lot of the skills that I talk about in cold case Christianity, I think, are, are cross-applicable. And so if, if you came at it like an historian, you have one approach. And in some ways, I am doing history when I work cold cases. But we have other ways of assessing witnesses that we put to the test in jury trials. And so what's great about this process is, is that unlike historical measuring points that we use or historical techniques, we can never go back in time and, and test them, or at least test them in front of juries to see if we come to a conclusion. I have just the, I have the luxury that I can test this and in front of a jury and get a verdict and often afterwards get a confession from the suspect that either confirms or helps me understand how much of my assumptions on the basis of my evidence or work were actually true. So in other words, I can test my process to see if it's working. And that's what's so great about a confession after the fact. I've got several of these, and it's just so helpful, right? Because I have a theory that I have developed from the evidence and the degree to which I am accurate in my theory is often told to me by a suspect after a jury trial. And so I get a chance, unlike doing history, I get a chance to test if my process is working. And that's been so helpful. And so now I take some of that process and I apply it toward Christianity. I, uh, for many years, grew up in an environment that really didn't have any Christians in it. I didn't have family members who were Christians or anybody really even spoke about God or faith issues or church or religion or any of that. As a matter of fact, I think probably most of my ideas about who God was were shaped around very, very early childhood experiences around the few friends and distant family members we had that were Roman Catholic. And so I didn't really have any idea what Christianity per se taught. I knew I didn't have any involvement with Roman Catholicism only because back in those days, in the 60s when I grew up, my parents were divorced. And so my mom really didn't have access. At least she didn't think she had access. This may not be true, but she didn't feel like she had access to some of the things that even Roman Catholicism taught. I think she'd have been more than willing, though, to be involved had she felt more comfortable I just it was not part of my upbringing by the time I was in junior high. I would say I was pretty committed as a philosophical naturalist and, you know, was very well much influenced by that generation of kids who grew up around Star Trek, the, you know, the first version of Star Trek, you know, landing on the moon, this idea that eventually science is going to answer all the critical questions that anybody could ever offer. And so I really believe that that was the case. And if you had open questions, questions that couldn't be answered simply because science hadn't discovered the answer yet. And it'd be silly to assume God exists when we could simply wait to see if Science did find a lot of answers that used to be attributed to the gods. You know, they used to think that thunder and lightning was a force of, you know, the Greek gods or or a god of some nature. And now the more we learn about science, the more we kind of eliminate the need for deity. 
that I was the kind of guy who would have thought that made perfect sense. Can't answer it doesn't mean we should default to God. And I held that position for a number of years. I met my wife when I was a teenager and ultimately got married and had kids. And she was definitely raised around an environment where people were more open and talked a lot about their faith. And her mom was Catholic. She was German, raised in the church there in Germany. And so my wife was somebody who was exposed to, but a little more culturally, you know, didn't really, if you asked, we didn't own a Bible, she didn't own a Bible, she never read a Bible, she, she didn't know anything more about what Christianity taught, aside from what she might hear in a parish on occasion when she would attend with her mom, maybe, and that was it. And so, but as we raised our own kids, I think she felt like, well, heck, I was kind of raised with some understanding of this, shouldn't we be raising our kids with it? And I was like, like my dad, who's a very committed atheist, I would have said, if you want to go to church, I'll go with you. But I'm not going to go as a believer, of course. I'm just going to go as a good husband who's willing to go with his wife. And that's pretty much the way I would be willing to go. And if that's the way you're willing to go to church, and I learned that from my dad, you don't want to go to church a lot. So, I mean, I would have gone on holidays. But if you're going to ask me to go every week, at some point that's going to wear me thin because you know, I don't want to go at all. And that was really my view. And so when we would be asked to go to church by people uh, in our neighborhood or uh, friends of Susie's or uh, even people at my work, there were a few guys who at least would invite us to church. I found clever ways to avoid it. And so at some point, as I was about 35, Susie one week said, hey, let's go to church this week. And I, I figured, well, she's probably going to want to go to the Roman Catholic Church that's around the corner from us. And we had been in this neighborhood for three years, and I had not gone to church or anything like it in all that time, so I felt pretty good. But she mentioned that one of my friends at work had invited us to go to this big church. And so I said, okay, if you want to go. I, I really didn't want to go to a big church. And this is one of the biggest churches in the country. So I thought, uh, I didn't want the whole the hassle of trying to park. and fun. But these folks who were friends of ours were willing to navigate us through that first visit. So we went. And um, in that first visit, the pastor, Cleverly, who was really used to addressing audiences that were primarily non-believers or had a large percentage of non-believers on certain days. He pitched Jesus as a super smart guy, you know, the smartest man who ever lived. If, if nothing else, you'd have to, you, you ought you owe it to yourself to listen to the teaching of Jesus just because you feel like smart people and you like wisdom. This is this is a great source. An ancient sage is the smartest an entire Western culture has been built on the teaching of Jesus largely. Wouldn't you want to know what he thought? Especially if I'm a cop, right, and I'm, I'm enforcing laws. By this time, I've been a cop almost 10 years, and, and I'm enforcing the laws of our culture. And, and you might want to kind of ask yourself, what, what are those laws, laws grounded in? What, where do those laws come from? Is it true that some of these laws are actually grounded in a Christian worldview? Maybe you want, might want to know what Christ had to say. So I, I bought a Bible just for the purposes of mining out the wisdom statements of Jesus. And if not, you know, you buy a Bible and you think that they're going to be proverbs, the prop, you know, the proverbial statements of this wise ancient sage. That's not what Scripture is. The New Testament is a series of gospels that at least appear to be written as though they actually happened in history. These events actually happened, or at least the writer of the events wants us to believe they actually happened. Well, that was something I could investigate, and I didn't realize that that was how these were going to be presented how the wisdom teaching of Jesus was going to be presented. So as I read through the Gospels, just trying to find out the red letters, I realized that, that there were some attributes of those Gospels that looked very similar to the uh, eyewitness statements of any event, any crime I've ever worked. You know, you might have three or four witnesses, and if you do, they're not going to agree. They never agree. And they're going to disagree in certain ways, and certain ways that puzzle together with a certain quality. And as I read through the Gospels, I realized that these accounts 
were very similar in the degree to which they, they varied, the way in which they varied, and the way in which they puzzled together. And that got me interested in applying a template to the Gospels that I knew from my professional work is the same template we use when we try to assess whether or not somebody is telling the truth. We have a template to test eyewitnesses, and, and there are usually three or four or five things we look at. If you really get picky, you can narrow it down to four critical issues that have to be examined. And when I did that with the Gospels, I realized that, wow, you know, in every way that we would test an eyewitness, these pass the test, with the exception of, I would have said, I can't believe the miracles. I mean, I can't believe everything about it, but I've got to take out the miracles, right? Because miracles don't happen. But then I realized that what was stopping me from believing in anything miraculous was really my presupposition against any miracle to begin with. It was, uh, and I had to ask myself, do I really have a strong basis for denying even the possible, the reasonable, the, the presence, the existence of anything supernatural, anything non-material, anything extra-natural, miraculous, however you want to define it. And so for me, I had to really examine that issue. What is it that's keeping me from being 100% in if they, if they measure up, if these Gospels measure up in every way that you could possibly test an eyewitness? What is keeping me out? What's well, the miracles? Well, why are you so opposed to miracles? And I had to take the next step uh, and look at, well, is there, can the universe really be explained accurately, given the kind of materialistic, atheistic, naturalistic worldview that I held? Because even as an atheist, I would have given you there were some things that cannot be explained on, on naturalism. They cannot be explained with just space, time, matter, and the laws of physics and chemistry. How do you explain consciousness? How do you explain free agency? How do you explain the origin of life? How do you, you, know, you can get close to making some large, broad gestures, but even the origin of the universe, if all space, time, and matter leaps into existence from nothing, that means the first cause of all of space, time, and matter cannot be anything spatial, temporal, or material, something that by very definition is extra natural, it doesn't possess the qualities of nature, space, time, and matter, it's something other than nature that has to be the first cause. So there were some things that I was willing to embrace as extra natural, and when I realized that, then I said, well, wait a minute, I'm already embracing some things that you cannot be explained by simple laws of nature and the elements available to me. So why would I, if there is a being that is powerful enough to blink everything into existence from nothing, I'll bet you he could probably walk on water. And so for me, that was the final step, was having to really look at my naturalism through the lens of the universe and say, did it really work? So I've tried to write about these things. I, you know, the, the first part of this investigation, you know, just looking at whether or not the Gospels are reliable, that's what I wrote about in, in Cold Case Christianity. And the second part of this investigation, looking at whether or not my naturalism could explain the universe the way it really is, is a book called God's Crime Scene. So really, it was that two-step process that led me to eventually submit my naturalistic limitations, my presuppositions, and then I really learned to trust what the Gospels were telling me about Jesus, but more importantly, to trust what they were telling me about me. Because you're not going to listen to what the Scripture has to say about the nature of fallen humans and their need for a Savior if you don't trust them. But once you trust them, because you've, you've measured them out and you've tested them, and now you trust what they tell you about history and about this person named Jesus who rose from the dead, well, now you're stuck with also everything else it teaches you about the nature of humans. And if you're honest with yourself, you start to recognize yourself on the pages of Scripture. And then I'm stuck. I wasn't, number one, I knew there was a Savior who rose from the dead, and I also knew that I was in need of that Savior. And those two things together were pretty powerful for me, and that's when I became a Christian. I never felt really along the way that this testimonial, so to speak, was worth telling. 
you know, because lots of folks that I, I work in law enforcement and lots of the people I know who became Christians later in life, you know, maybe came out of a really bad environment or a really bad drug addiction or a really bad something. And they have a miraculous story to tell of the transformation that God enacted in their lives. And I always felt like my story is pretty boring, right? I mean, I got the Bible, read it, investigated it, and decided it was true. It doesn't sound like it's much of a story to me. But for some, I think it helps because I didn't realize how most, I didn't realize at the time that that's not how people become Christians typically. They don't, they don't necessarily become Christians because they investigated the facts and the evidence and determined this was the most reasonable inference from the evidence. For a lot of us, something else confirms it. We have an experience that we, we interpret. The problem, of course, if if you're going to let your experiences tell you whether or not something is true, then how do you argue with people who believe something different than you that's not compatible, like Mormonism, for example? What do you do with your Mormon brothers and sisters who will say, well, yeah, I also had an experience that confirmed it for me? Well, yeah, but you know, I I, I, I read this and I, I felt this experience. I felt this physically. I experienced this emotionally. Well, I, I did too. Well, yeah, but you know, so now you're just kind of arguing your own experience versus somebody else's experience. You know, experiences clearly, we can't both be right. We have completely different views of God, completely different views of Jesus, completely different views of salvation. We don't agree on anything. So we can both be wrong, or one of us might be right, but we both can't be right because we believe two different things. And all we have to tell the difference is our our experiences. If that's the case, we're, we're stuck. But if there's a way to test your experience to see if it's evidentially true, wouldn't you want to know it? And wouldn't you want to be able to articulate that to others who maybe can't test their experience with evidence? And that's why I really think we have to kind of start to rethink. And I firmly believe that the first Christians who described the gospel, described the truth about Jesus to others, they did it by saying one thing. The scriptures predicted this. We saw it. We are eyewitnesses. We saw it with our own eyes. That's the book of Acts. I'm reading through it again. I must have read through it. That's probably the one book I've read through more than any other uh, book of the New Testament is the book of Acts because I'm amazed at how evidentially rooted the first apostles are. They pick each other on the basis of their eyewitness status. They testify about Jesus on the basis of their eyewitness status and what they saw. Everyone talks about what they saw with their own eyes, what they touched, what who they ate with. I mean, it's, it's always an eyewitness account. And so in the end, I think we owe it to ourselves as Christians to take a similar approach. And so we ought to be able to offer the evidence for why we believe this is true. Because if we're just going to say, you know, I prayed and then this happened and I had this experience. Well, everyone could say that. We're the one group that could say there's good evidence to suggest that what's in the Gospels is true. I think about when people ask me why I'm a believer. I mean, yes, I, unlike you, I did have sort of an emotional uh, experience, but the reason I believe because it's true. I want everyone to know that we have a faith that is grounded in evidence, that it is reasonable to believe, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and even if you said to yourself, okay, look, you know, um, I don't believe that your road into believing something needs to be the same. It has to be evidential. I mean, I, I believe that my experience is just as valid as anything. Of course. I mean, look, in the end, are my friends who, who had an experience and have become Christians, are they saved? Of course. I mean, this is, you know, so if all you said was, 
This approach that I took was the way I became a Christian, and it may be more appropriate for other folks that you know that aren't as emotionally uh, maybe um, inclined. They are maybe a little more, I'm not, it's a cop. I had learned over a period of years that, you know, I don't get emotionally involved. You, you learn to, to kind of separate and to not take things personally, and to and you, you just learn that if I'm going to cry every time I feel like crying, if I'm going to have an emotional experience, if I want to have an emotional experience, I'm not going to be able to do this job. I'm going to have to learn how to take my emotions and quench them in some ways. Sadly, if you want to keep your sanity. And so if that's the case, and you have to like that, that the road in to them is probably not going to be an emotional experience. Because for folks like me, we're not going to have that kind of experience. And you could argue, well, if you do, you know it's from God. Well, well I've got Mormon brothers and sisters, six of them, who will all tell me that the reason why they know the Book of Mormon is true and that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God is because they've had that kind of an emotional experience or that kind of physical experience that they can actually describe as this, you know, that, that classically be described as a burning in the bosom. But the point is they've had some personal experience after praying about this that led them to believe this is true. And if you think that's not true, and it's not, well, then you know that that way of knowing truth is insufficient. And, and it may lead you to truth, but it may also lead you to error. If you're good at examining evidence and learn the rules of evidence and learn how to work with evidence, you've got a much better chance of not being caught in error. And that, I think, in itself is probably enough reason to want to embrace a more, I call it a forensic faith. The next book I'm writing is called Forensic Faith. But this is an idea that you're, you're more reasonable, rational, rooted in the, the, the way you assess. Most of us, if we're smart, we know we don't buy a car on the basis of our emotional experience. We're going to probably overspend and buy a car we shouldn't buy. If, in every other category of life, most of us would advocate toward a more reasonable, rational, measured approach to making decisions. But then when it gets to this area of life, you don't believe it can be measured or uh, assessed uh, evidentially. For whatever reason, we don't approach it that way. But you wouldn't approach other decisions uh, in a similar way. You would be much more reasoned in the way you approach other important decisions in life. And this is one of those. I have met people who have bought cars based on emotion, and they did cry about it later. Yeah, exactly, because the bills were higher than they wanted to pay, or maybe it wasn't the right. You know, all of those things definitely are important to kind of navigate. And so I think in the end, we, we want to have a, if we want to protect ourselves from the, to the, the most successfully from error, then we're going to have to, uh, to be more reasonable and evidential in our approach. A big thanks to Jay Warner Wallace. I just finished his new book, God's Crime Scene. It's eye-opening to say the least. You've got to check it out. Also, you can find out more about him and check out his other titles, Cold Case Christianity, Alive, and Cold Case Christianity for Kids at his website, coldcasechristianity.com. Jay Warner Wallace is also working on a book yet to be released entitled Forensic Faith. Keep your eyes open for that one. And yes, we've come to this time once again. The end of the show. But don't worry. There's a whole lot more stories to be heard at talesoftherevolution.com. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and anywhere you find podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash talesoftherevolution. On Twitter, at Jason Vreeke, and on Instagram, at Real Jason Vreeke. That's V-R-E-E-K-E. That's me. I'm the Real Jason Vreeke, and your fellow revolutionary. 
And if you go to talesoftherevolution.com and subscribe by email, I'll send you a link to download exclusive content. You won't find it anywhere else, I promise you that. Again, talesoftherevolution.com. Until next time, tell somebody about the real Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest revolutionary of all, as you live the revolution. <laughs>